Now I have to let you guys know how close I came many years ago to never being a pastor. I don't know if you know this, but I should be one of the wealthiest people in the world. I'm in a worldly way. It started probably 30, 35 years ago, closer to 30. And it was uh, this time of year. It was right after Christmas. And I was in my parents' living room, and my sister was there in my mom's Electrolux vacuum. And we were tasked with vacuuming. We didn't do a very good job. But it had a uh, hose. And my sister had long hair. I mean, really long hair. And I'm looking at the hose, and I'm looking at my sister, and I'm like, cool idea. So I started vacuuming her head. And it was so cool. The hair comes up into the vacuum. Well, then my mind, boom. Oh, if you cut hair while you vacuum it, no mess, hair goes into the vacuum. It's the greatest idea ever, right? Well, I was a kid, and I didn't know about patents and trademarks and stuff. You know what this is? The stinking Floby was mine. And there was some like secret nanny cam in our house that, that someone stole the idea. I am the original Floby inventor. I should be rich. But it didn't stop there. You see, I had another idea five, six years later. It was called Battle. Battle of the Animals. And I'd gather my friends around at lunchtime or recess, and as we got older on school buses, this would last for many years. And I'd say, all right, gorilla versus a lion. Who wins? And we discuss the finer points of the battle. Shark versus alligator, honey badger versus bear. And you'd pick your animal and talk about why they would win. I mean, how cool is this, right? Discovery Channel, don't know if you know this, about five years ago they picked up a show where they took my stinking animal battles. More money that I lost. And today, that's all I have to say. Have a good rest of the week. <laughs> well, the animal battles, I actually expanded it. And I'm going to patent this because it will be on TV. I brought it into the house. I brought it to the holidays. I brought it to the trip house on Christmas one year. Now you got a picture about 20, 30 folks sitting around there, two tables, one big table, nice chairs, nice table, on carpet, and then a rectangular big table in the main foyer area, on wood, folding chairs for kids. And I'm sitting there with my cousins and I said, check this out, listen, hey guys, all these heads, a lot of gray hair looks my way. Who would win a fight between Dad, my dad, and Uncle Ronnie? I said, who? Well, you would suspect that would get laughed off, but no, I'm a genius. I am a production genius. And my dad looks at my Uncle Ronnie, he goes, I crush him. And my Uncle Ronnie goes, oh, no way. And I backed it off. I said, well, what about Mom versus Aunt Susan? I started matching up people. Like, we were going to have these battles, and, and the tension built. And I know if I pushed far enough, there would have been canes swinging at blood relatives and, and elementary school kids chewing on the necks of their cousins to kill them as they fought to the battle, the death in the battle, right? Where the heck am I going with this? Well, it's been a long week. I'm sleep-deprived. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've always been a fan of, of great matchups, great battles. I never saw them played out in my my family's holiday celebrations, but I'm bringing it to church today. So, Matt. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to show you guys the greatest battle of all time. The pinnacle of matchups in all of human history takes place today as we go back into the life of Elijah. 
Today we're going to look at the battle of the gods. We're going to look at the battle of Baal versus the battle of, versus Yahweh. They're going to take it to a mountaintop, and we're going to see who wins. And we're going to see what this has to do with our life. Four weeks we spent on John 3.16 at Christmas, right? Today we go 40 verses. It keeps my, I like to keep my average around a 17-verse average. I'm going to do 40 verses today. I'm going to ask you to do your best to pay attention to this long reading of Scripture, and then I will unpack it for you, hopefully flesh it out, and then we'll see if this has anything to do with our lives. So you all with me? You all acknowledge that I should be filthy, stinking rich, right? Those are some pretty cool ideas. I hope I get another one one day. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. I'm in 1 Kings 18 here. I should probably let you know that. Let's set the stage for those two verses, all right? Remember 17.1, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. God said, Go to Ahab and tell him, It won't rain and there'll be no dew except by your word. So Elijah goes. Ahab isn't happy. God says, run out to the brook Kareth. Goes to the brook Kareth. you got the ravens coming in. The brook dries up. Go to Zarephath. Goes to Zarephath, and there's a widow. She feeds them. All's going good. They're running out of flour and oil, but God keeps it coming. Her son dies. Elijah prays for the son to come back to life. The son's alive again. Things are going good. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Jump to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. Let's stop there a minute. Elijah goes to Ahab, and there are 950 false prophets, Baal and Asherah. Baal is the, the god of the sun, the supposed god of the sun, the god of fertility. Asherah is kind of his lady friend. 950 prophets who eat at the table of Jezebel. That means they're in the king's inner court. They're close advisors of the king. Elijah goes, he says, hey, Bring the 950. Now you have to understand there are more than 950 idolatrous false prophets, but these are the ones in the inner court. Think about that. This is not a, a nation of 300 million people. This is a nation of, you know, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of a million tops. And they have this many false prophets. And the king of this nation, of, of Yahweh's nation, has these false prophets in his inner court. 
Elijah comes and says, let's take it to Mount Carmel. Why Mount Carmel? It's a cool name, right? Mount Carmel laid between Israel and Phoenicia. Israel was the land of Yahweh. Phoenicia was the land of Baal. Remember Jezebel brought Baal worship? And the people in Phoenicia thought that Mount Carmel was the sacred dwelling place of Baal. So Elijah says, hey, bring it up to Carmel. Let's bring it to Baal's homeland. And Ahab thought, great idea, let's do it. You see, Ahab and these false prophets, and as you see here, many people, actually believed that Baal was a real god who was really in charge of the sun and, and the crops and fertility and all that stuff. They, they thought he was as real as day. So they thought, this is crazy. Why would Elijah, who believes in diddly old Yahweh, want to step into Baal's home court? Of course this is not going to go well for him. So Elijah says, let's do it. Bring two bowls, we'll chop them up. Whoever cooks them up wins the battle. These guys are set. They got the God of the sun on his mountaintop. All he needs to do is crack a little fire. Elijah's an idiot, isn't he? Then Elijah said to the prophets, Choose one bowl and prepare it for your many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. So you realize Elijah is watching 450 prophets of Baal going flat crazy. I mean, they're cutting themselves, they're screaming, they're, they're running around frantic. I can just see Elijah like leaning off over in the side on a rock. Oh! Maybe he's in the potty, guys. Ooh, a little cramp, and he'll be out. He's mocking them. And what does that do? They go crazy. They cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That means 3 p.m. in English speak. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. This is hysterical and incredibly sad at the same time, isn't it? 450 people on a mountaintop believing a false god is real, screaming like lunatics, cutting themselves, soaked in blood, going crazy. Oh, Baal, send fire! What kind of idiot would do that? Now, if you saw someone go on a trail to like a high hill over here, and they started calling out, Oh, Baal, send fire! You would call 911, wouldn't you? <laughs> Please help. There's a crazy person on the trail to East Brandywine, and they're screaming for Baal. What's wrong with them? But, but, but what if someone sacrificed something else on the altar of a false god? Say someone sacrificed a family on the altar of a false god called money. Say someone sacrificed their reputation on the altar of a false god called success. You see where I'm going here? There are lots of false gods that live today that are just as fake as Baal, but people pursue with absolute vim and vigor. It's sad. It's not so funny when you live in the midst of it, but it's not a new phenomenon we live in. These people are going crazy. Elijah mocked them. For six hours, that's the time frame from when they started through noon to the oblation, which is the evening offering of the Israelites, 3 p.m. Finally, Elijah says, all right, all right, shh, stop. Come near to me. And all the people came near. Now, who are these people? They're the Israelites from back in 21. 
They're fence sitters. They're lukewarmers. You know what lukewarmer means? Jesus talks about it in Revelation 3. We'll get there in a minute. They're neither hot nor cold. They kind of follow God if God's doing all right. They'll follow another God if the other God seems to suit their purposes. Kind of like, kind of like looks like this. Well, I love God and, and, and I trust Jesus, but, but when times get tough, sometimes I got to trust me a little bit more over Jesus. That's called fence sitting. Or, yeah, I know God says this, but the world says this, so I'll serve God in this compartment in the world and that compartment. That's called fence sitting. Now, we'll talk about how we all do that to degrees in a moment, but a lot of people came in who, who were fence-sitters. And Elijah gathers them around. And he took 12 stones and built an altar here. And went with the stones, he built an altar, verse 32, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seals of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces. That is why I don't want to be a prophet. Can you imagine cutting a whole bull up by yourself? He cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Time out. What's going on in the land for three years? Wait a minute, we caught a problem in the Bible. Where's the water coming from? Three-year drought, they're saying there's all this water. Ha, it's a joke. Right? Mount Carmel was right by the Mediterranean Sea. So you've got to put this in time perspective. What you almost certainly have are people trapsing down the side of the mountain to get water out of the sea, to bring it up the mountain and dump it on the offering four times. That takes some time, right? So Elijah has stepped on stage at three. After the prophets of Baal are a bloody mess sitting off on the side, panting, covered in sweat, they don't know what just happened. Sun's going down. He's running out of time. He says, go get me some water. They bring it up again. Again, again, sun's going down. Doesn't he have to do a six-hour ritual going crazy to get his God to work? Elijah's just hanging out. He looks as calm as a cucumber, and you'll see why in a minute. He said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. Sorry, I said four. It's three. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. What Elijah is showing is this is no gimmick. I haven't put like a hidden spark in my wood. This stuff not going to burn, soaking wet wood. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consume the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. What do you do with that? Good story? Just one of those fun ones to stick in the back of your mind. Things get tough. Go up on a mountain. Ask God to send some fire. Shazam. I got my Shazam in. It's a good sermon. Shazam. What do we do with this? It's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? Put your hands up. Five fingers, all right? Five points. For the next week, every time you look at your hand, try to remember the five points from this sermon. Number one. 
see it on your thing? Somebody read to me what number one is. Know you're invincible. What a great prayer request. Diane and Renee and I staged that. You know, be fearless. Know you're invincible. Elijah's up on Carmel. He's in the enemy's home court. 950 false prophets and a whole lot of Israelites and an idolatrous king verse. Elijah, who wins the battle? Who won the battle? You and I are invincible. As Christians, we're on the winning team. Now, how, it seems kind of unfair, doesn't it? Let's say you're going you're gonna to bet, I know, I know, hypothetically, you're going to bet on the Giants game today, but you already knew who was going to win. It's kind of like watching it on ESPN Classic with a poor, unsuspecting fool. Oh, look what's on. It's the 2006 Super Bowl, and they don't know it. Well, let's bet on the winner. Like, okay, okay, okay. Is it that year the Giants beat the Patriots? Let's say it was. And I say, I got the Giants. Like, you idiot, I got the Patriots. They're going to cream them. All right, what do you want to bet? A thousand bucks. Done. Wouldn't that be cruel? Because I know. Shouldn't they know? What about if I said to them, no, this is a rerun. No, I'm not a rerun. This is live. No, it's no. I'm taking money from a baby. Taking candy. Taking money from a baby. Taking candy from a baby. <laughs> you and I are basically living the ESPN classic version of life. We live in the midst of the battle, but the battle is done. And guess who won? God. You and I were chosen to be put on the winning team. God opened our eyes, drew us to himself. We said, I'll follow you. He said, come on board, kids. We won. And all we got to do is walk through the battle knowing the victory is ultimately ours. So Elijah stands on the mountain, 950 plus a king plus a multitude of people against him. And you know what Elijah knew? I won. Remember David and Goliath? I love in sports when they use the illustration of a David versus a Goliath. It's like a five-year-old kid fighting Mike Tyson is a David versus a Goliath story. Obviously, Tyson's a Goliath, the kid is a David. It should actually be flipped, you know that. David knew he was going to whoop Goliath. God knew he was going to whoop Goliath. Everybody thought David was going to lose, except David and God. Go ahead and read that in 1 Samuel. Look at, well, you know what? Let's flip there a minute. Go to 1 Samuel, chapter 17. You look at verse 26. It says here, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, if you didn't know better, you might think David was a buff warrior, right? What kind of fool is screwing with our God, guys? Who's going to whoop this man? Look what happens in verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, that be Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's called confidence. That's called a victorious mindset. Folks, Elijah knew something. David knew something. They'd been through some preparatory times. Do you know what they know? Do you know who it is that dwells in you? You and I are invincible. It doesn't mean that God's going to do our will. But it means that God will care for us perfectly and His will, get, His will will get done. And we're invited to be in that work 
through the blood of Christ. Thumbs up means you know that you're invincible. Got it? Elijah knew it. David knew it. Read through the Bible. Look at who God uses. He uses those the world wouldn't suspect, but who he knows. Number two, make sure you're all in. See, now I'm in 1 Kings and I need to be over here. Elijah says to the people in verse 21, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Folks, from me to you, because I hear it all the time, from God, I believe, get your foot over the fence all the way into sheepfold. You and I, you and I were on the wrong side of the sheepfold until we got put on the right side of the sheepfold. And we have this propensity in the flesh to drag toes, don't we? Uh, I'm all in... And we're just dragging that foot as far back as we can. We're hanging on to every remnant we can, whether we, remember, whether we notice it or not. Do you know how silly it must have looked for someone like us, if we could go back in time to see these per- people screaming to Baal, Oh, Baal, send fire! Do you know how silly it looks from sinless eyes coming down from heaven on us? Oh, fill in the blank, false god, help me! You know how silly that looks? All in is a gift, but it's a necessity. Now, on this side of heaven, as we're we're growing in our faith, as we're going through the process of sanctification, you're going to have trouble getting all the way all in. Your reaction to that should be, oh, God, you made me realize I'm dragging a toe on that side of the fence. Uh, Can you please help me? Because, see, I like to keep my toe there, but I know it's not glorifying to you. Can you help lift that toe and put it on the other fence? I'll try to do it easy so I don't have to go kicking and screaming. But I know you love me enough to move that foot. Make sure you're all in. Here's the other thing. We live in a world of Christian, quote-unquote, fence-sitters. The compartmentalized Christianity. The people who love Jesus on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday they got other stuff going on. If we truly love these people, if we truly fulfill our calling, if we truly understand what eternal life is and what's so great about abundant life, we need to lovingly, through word and deed, Let them know it's an all-or-nothing proposition. I know many people who identify themselves as Christians to me, and I ask them, well, tell me what that means. I was brought up Episcopal. Cool. I sat in a parking lot. I'm an Audi. There's more to being a Christian than just going to a church, no? There's more to being a Christian than just kind of liking Jesus. Being a Christian is about living in relationship with Christ. Not perfectly, because then you'd be saved by works. But it's an all or nothing. We can't fence it. You and I need to make sure we're not doing it. And when we notice that we are, we need to pray that God would convict us of it, repair us of it, and forgive us for it. He's faithful to do all of them. And as we go out, we need to love people enough to say, hey, it's an all or nothing proposition, but that's a good thing. God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to have to suffer or struggle. He only wants what's best for you, but you are going to get burned if you leave your foot in the fire. Make sense? Number three. Get to praying. Prayer's tough, isn't it? How many people here spend lengthy, extended periods in prayer joyfully? All right, don't put your hands up, because it's going to be really awkward if everybody's hand goes up, and I'm like, oh, shoot. (laughs) A lot of people in our time struggle with extended periods of time in prayer. We're busy, right? we got to get up by the alarm clock to get to the train or get to the office or get to work, whatever we're doing, to get home and get things done, to get to bed, to get up the next day. And in between, we have all these devices to speed us up so we could do email on the go and we could, like, you know those phones, what do you call them in your ear? 
Bluetooth, you can, you can like Bluetooth and, and while, you're, while you're doing your texting, while you're brushing your teeth. We, yeah, we make things happen because we're busy. The thought of taking an extended period of time for prayer, come on, how, how are we going to do that? Do you notice what Elijah did to make this click? You don't see this, but he went to a conference. They, they, they took this out. It was between chapter 17 and 18. He went to the prophet. It's called Fire on High Conference. It was taking place in a Nineveh, Nineveh church. And he heard some great, great speakers from all over the world talking about how to make fire come down. And he came out. He had this shirt, I'm on fire for God. He wore it all over the place. And he had the books and the, and the CDs. And it was, it was awesome. And he came down. And it just, boom, he put it into play, right? No. You know what he did, right? He prayed. Do you know how he knew to pray? Because he had prayed before. Now, I'm a student of church history, and if you look over time, at periods of time where God has worked mighty to, bring, to do amazing works among people, do you know what got him going each and every time? Prayer. Not a program. Not a president. Prayer. How often do we want to fix things by doing stuff? We think we can make the world better. I'm saying we not here, but as a whole. By getting the right politician in place. We think we can make the church more robust by getting the right program in place. We think we can bring people to faith by using the right practice and sales pitch. Stop. Back up and pray. How often do you pray for those you want to see come to faith? Don't answer it out loud again. But how often do you dedicate some time of your day to God to get quiet before Him as an act of worship and just praise God, petition God, and expect God to answer those prayers for His glory? Now, I'm concerned that the answer is probably not enough. We do corporate prayer every other Sunday, right? You know why? Because you want to have something like that on the church calendar. Because when people look at the church, when they see corporate prayer, then they're like, dang, I'll go there. They got corporate Right? No. We have corporate prayer because we need to be a praying church. We need to be a prayer-powered church. That's really hard to say. We need to be a prayer-powered church because that's how God works. We need to be a prayer-powered people. We need to have prayer-powered families. That doesn't mean you just kind of sit there like, well, I'll just pray for two hours a day and I'm set. No. But it means we need to have time set apart for God. Because if we don't, I think we don't see God work as mightily as He would desire. Do you think for a moment that the God who smashed fire down on this soaking, dripping wet offering, he, he got, like, inept over the years? Like, he's up in heaven, but he got old. He's like, oh, fire, go! Go! And they like, can't make it all the way down? He's like, oh, I'm going to part the sea! Oh! Oh, my back! Right? What happened with God? He got old? Or did we, as a people, kind of stop praying a little bit? Don't miss this. Prayer is our primary and most effective weapon to, to petition God, to have Him do his, to do his work for His glory, and to see mighty things happen. The most amazing miracle that took place wasn't that fire came down from the sky. You know what it was? People's eyes were open to the truth of who God was. Do you think God can send fire from the sky? Of course He can. Do you think He wants to? The Bible says God's will is that none should be lost, but all should be saved. The missing component I'm seeing is a people of God who pray powerfully. But look at what number four is here. Make sure you're praying for God's glory, not your own. So, if I was Elijah, 
And I came back from the conference in Nineveh with, you know, I'm on fire shirt, and I went up on the mountain, and boom, and all of Israel saw what I, what I did. I mean, look at, look at Prophet John. He made fire come down from the sky. This man should write a book. Okay. He should record a song like called, I'm on fire. He should go all over the land and tell people how to make people become God followers, how to make fire come down from the sky and burn up rocks. This man is powerful. And then I'd be set. How cool would that be? I could be on with Oprah. Oprah would come back from retirement. We could build a huge cathedral. I could finally get the corporate jet for the church. I am determined to get that's going to be awkward in like 30 years if I end up some reason with a jet. Well, we'll deal with that then. But would that be the right approach to it? You see what Elijah says here? Verse 36, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah is saying, plain and simple, God, please make me very clear that you did this, not me, that you get all the glory, not I, and the people be drawn to you, and not me. Is that how you pray? I find, personally, sometimes my prayers are more about what I want than what God might want for me, or from me. I mean, you can get to the most basic. God, make it snow a lot. Why? I don't know. I don't care about the millions of people crashing along the roads in Pennsylvania. I want snow. A little bit me-focused. God delights in giving us good and wonderful gifts. God is not a miser. God will give us things that, really, just because he loves us at times. But our prayer should be more focused on God receiving the glory than on ourselves. So if I or you or anyone who's a true, deep, committed follower of Christ stood on that mountaintop, could God send fire? Yes. Would he? I believe he would if it was for his glory only and not yours. Would you be prepared today to stand on a mountaintop to watch God work mightily through you and like John the Baptist says, to make sure that you decrease and he increases? You see, when we go out and we, we live the calling God put on our life, we need to be very careful not to want to be glorified for it. Not even from other people, but inside. Well, God, if I do that, I want to see this happen, or it's not happening. Success isn't determined by the result. Success is determined by the faithfulness. If Elijah went up on high, prayed to God to send the fire, and no fire came, Elijah is still successful if that's what God told him to do. If the fire comes, he's successful as well, because that's what God chose to do. But you understand, he was where God said, doing what God said, and that's where success is determined, because he was working for God's glory. That's what you and I need to be doing, too. I'm trying to blank it on two. We're invincible. We've got to be praying. We've got to be praying for God's glory. What was number two? Somebody help me out. See, you guys are listening better than me. That leaves one finger, doesn't it? Never underestimate the power of one. I was telling you before about, about how powerful we can be. Who lives in us as Christians? You understand that's God, right? It's not Tinkerbell, it's God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. In the beginning, I'm way back in Genesis here. I have a version in my head. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God spoke, boom, it was. That summarizes the beginning. Incredible power, no? When you look up at the sky, at all those stars, you understand, one day God said, stars, boom. 
Think how long it takes to put up a skyscraper in a building, in a city, right? God says, boom, the universe is created. Let's bring it down a little closer. Remember the Egyptian situation with the Israelites and all those plagues? That's a pretty powerful deity, no? Remember the Red Sea? People went through the Red Sea, the sea came back. That's a pretty powerful deity. You remember the walls at Jericho? Just go around, play some instruments, and yell, kaboom. I mean, our God is an awesome God. Remember that guy, Lazarus, who died, came back from the dead? I mean, God's got some might in him, no? And he dwells in us. Do you think for a minute that the God who made all can't work through us in amazing ways, that he can't care for us perfectly? The situations we all go through can be scary. Renee, I'll, I'll pick on you. You know, with, with, with all, the, all the difficulties you face, it could get overwhelming, can't it? You look at it and you're like, God, I don't understand what you're up to. Why are you, what's going on? Why won't you just fix it this way? And we start to wonder, where is God? Did God forget? Did God get too distant? What's he up to? Well, well you realize God can do anything. God can fix, correct, change, alter, adjust. God could bring every dead body out of the graves right now. It would freak you out. But he could do it. God, God can do anything, and he dwells inside of us. He's not going to do exactly what we tell him to because he's a loving father. But you understand the raw power that dwells inside of us? You can't really fathom it, can you? Never underestimate the power of one dedicated, submitted, equipped, refined, all-in, prayer-filled individual. I'll say that again. Dedicated, submitted, equipped, refined, all-in, prayer-filled individual. 17.1 said, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe went to Ahab and declared that it will not rain and there will be no dew except in my word. Then God sent him off to the brook Kerith. He broke him down. He had the ravens fly in his meals. He had a little stream giving him water and he had a lot of time to spend alone with God. He was being prepared. God said, take a walk to Zarephath. God, that's a long walk. I know it's a long walk. Ahab wants to kill me. I know he wants to kill you. Do you trust me? Do you think I can protect you, Elijah? Uh-huh. Go, well, what am I going to eat? Just, Elijah, go. I got this. And he got him all the way, 100-mile trip to Zarephath. To go to a widow. You talk about humility. A widow is going to provide for him. So he gets there, and the widow greets him, and she's like, well, we got a little problem. Uh, the flour and the oil are running out. At this point, a mere mortal is going to fall to the ground in a quivering heap of mess. But not Elijah, because he's being prepared. And he says, God's got it. And God keeps filling that jar and that jug day by day, and things are going well, and Elijah can finally sit back and relax, and we got a dead kid on our hands. But Elijah doesn't run and freak out, because he knows he's being prepared and equipped, and he knows who's guiding him, and he knows he's in the right place, and the boy comes back to life, and he sends him, God sends him back to Ahab. And at the time he came up on this mountain, Elijah knew that the odds were not stacked against him. I tell you this, Elijah was a man just like, just like us in nature, James tells us that, and he had feelings. I'm not saying he walked up to Mount Carmel just strutting like a rooster in the morning. I'm sure there's a part of him like, uh, what if this goes bad? Uh, what if they kill me? Uh, what if God doesn't send the fire? Uh, what if, what if, what if, what if? We all have the what if thinking in the flesh. But the flesh had been overcome by the Spirit. And God encouraged him. And even when he didn't know the end result, he said, all right, God, I'm just going to give it all to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give it whatever happens. It's for your glory. If I die on the mountaintop, I die on the mountaintop because I know where I'm going. And up, up, up he went. But he never underestimated the power of one. How about you? Would you love to see 
people come to faith hand over fist to get to spend eternity with you in heaven? Would you love to see your family members all come to faith? Would you love to see God have your whole neighborhood come to faith? Could you imagine living in an entire neighborhood filled with Christian people who came to faith through a miraculous work of God? And what if that work happened through you? When you go to work, you know, like, God's not really going to bring your whole office to faith, is he now? Why not? Now, you want to do it God's way. You don't go in and build an altar at work tomorrow, okay? Don't start yelling, fire, because you're going to be fired. But when you walk in obedience to God, he can do anything. And what he's looking for are dedicated, submitted, equipped, prepared, refined, prayerful people. Success is not found in the results. And folks, you're not going to see what happens most of the time. But one day when you go to heaven and you see Jesus face to face, how cool if he gets his chuckle and says, hey, come here. And you see some faces you never expected. They say, how did, how did you get here? They say, remember when, when God sent fire down through you? No. Well, I do. What did that look like? And they tell you the stories. Never underestimate the power of one. God doesn't need a church of 20,000 to do a mighty work. God needs faithful, committed, dedicated people who are willing to be refined, who base their lives in prayer for his glory to work in extraordinary ways. This is what I take from the story, the high five. There are your five points. Look at your hand. Think about that. And then ask yourself this question. Do you really believe that God is unchangeable? The same God who sent fire on Mount Carmel to open the people's eyes to the truth is a God who dwells today. Do you believe that a God who worked through Elijah in the way he did, who was a man with a nature just like ours, can work through us in the same way? I'm not saying he's going to send fire down on a mountaintop, but I'm saying when you go where he says go, and you're letting him equip you, and you're dedicating your life to him for his glory, you will be floored by what he does. Now, do you want to do this? We can make this another New Year's resolution. Do you want to start this very day? Little by little, getting the foot off and over the fence in every area of our lives, giving it all to God for his glory. Do you want to start trying to carve out and cultivate an attitude of prayer? Now, this is not going to work if you go home and like, fine, I'm giving it 90 minutes today. Let's go incrementally. But let's start giving prayer to God as an act of worship for his glory and trusting that he knows what to do and that he'll use it for his glory. Do you believe that prayer is our primary weapon out there to overcome the darkness? Make a list. Start praying for people. Start praising God. Start walking in greater obedience. It's called the process of sanctification. And I'll guarantee you this. When Elijah and David and Moses and Paul gather together in heaven and start telling the stories they have, you and I could come and pull up a chair right alongside. And they might say to us, hey, Kelly, come and tell us that story about what happened at your school again, will you? They might say, hey, Matt, come and tell us about your neighborhood. They might say, Patty, tell us about that train ride into the city. Because we look at the things they did. It's not about what they did. It's about what God did through them. And the same God lives today and works through people today who submit their lives to him for his glory and bathe it in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you for this story. I thank you for the fact that you are God. And that for some strange reason, you choose to work through ordinary, messed up people like us. I thank you for the fact that through Christ, you don't see us as messed up, corrupted, sinful people, but you see us through the blood of Christ, forgiven, restored, and renewed. I thank you for the fact that we don't get into heaven and have an eternal relationship with you based on anything we do, but rather based on what was done for us. And I thank you that life isn't about us but it's about you. 
I thank you, God, for the fact that you invite us into your work. And I pray we would make the, the best use of our time as you command us to. I pray that we would be a people who seek after your glory only, that you would convict us of any area in our life where it is our glory we seek over yours, that you would move us over the fence line completely of any dangling area of our lives that we're hanging on to a false god. I pray, God, you would be gentle with us, that you would encourage us, that you would, that you would uh, equip us in every way to know how good you are. You tell us, God, in your word to taste and see that the Lord is good. Please lay the food of you in front of us to taste and allow us to see the reality of how good and loving and awesome you really are. God, I pray you would give us some awesome stories to tell for your glory. I pray that everything that happened in our lives and through our lives, both individually and as a church, would only happen because it was empowered by you and done for your glory. That we would be a miraculous people, born into a miraculous new self through the blood of Christ, working through a miraculous power that indwells us, doing miraculous things that only you could do through us for your glory. God, thank you for allowing us to call you Father Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to call you friend because you called us friend first. God, help us live in light of the fact we are invincible children of God. We are princes and princesses and princes whose father is a king. Help us understand that more fully. Help us understand what it means to be a child of the Most High God and how much you love those in this world and how you want all people to come before you and glorify you and worship you and love you because you first loved them. Please use us in that process. Use us like you used your servant Elijah for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.